This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 2 this morning. John chapter 2. If you were raised in a Christian home, or I would say even raised with any familiarity of the Bible at all, then you have heard of the miraculous stories of the Old Testament. Most of us grew up hearing about the Lord parting the Red Sea and the Jordan River. We heard about the walls of Jericho crumbling down. We heard about the manna provided supernaturally from heaven. We heard about the people of God being supernaturally led by a pillar of fire at night. We heard of water coming from a rock. We heard about Daniel being saved in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being saved from the fire. And so these stories are just normal to us. We have grown up being very aware of God's power and his miraculous work in all of these stories of the Old Testament. Now, because of that, because we're so familiar with these things, when we come to the New Testament and we begin to read about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, we discover that we're not surprised by anything Jesus does either. Like, we're not surprised when Jesus turns water into wine. We're not surprised when Jesus walks on water. We're not even surprised when Jesus has raised somebody from the dead. We're not surprised that he delivers people from demonic spirits. We're not surprised that he heals people with just a touch or a word. It's almost sad a little bit that, that we're not surprised when we open the Gospels. None of us are shocked when we hear Jesus do something miraculous. None of us are astounded, it seems, anymore, because we just know that these are the things Jesus does. Our understanding of God and the Father and God the Son, God the Holy Spirit just prepares us to open up and see Jesus do miraculous things. And so we just aren't that surprised. But there is one story that surprises us. There is one episode in the ministry of Jesus that shocks us. There is one moment that doesn't fit into our categories of Jesus. We have this idea of who Jesus is and the kind of things that Jesus does and the way in which Jesus acts. And then all of a sudden we come to a story that doesn't fit with any of our categories at all. And we honestly, for a moment, don't know what to do with Jesus. The Jesus who hadn't surprised us by any of his miraculous things surprises us by this moment. It's that moment in which Jesus walks into a temple. And he surveys the situation and sees what happens. And then he walks away and very thoughtlessly and meticulously crafts a whip. And he takes the whip and he runs throughout the courtyard of the temple, driving everyone out of the courtyard, loosing the animals as they run out of the courtyard of the temple and declaring that you have made my father's house a den of robbers and it should be a house of prayer. We don't know what to do with that Jesus. He doesn't fit into any of our categories. There is nothing we know about Jesus that seems to make that story fit. And what's surprising is not that he just did it once, but he did it twice. At his first Passover in his earthly ministry and his last post-Passover, he did it again. We almost feel like we need to make some excuse for this Jesus. 
It's almost like we're embarrassed about this Jesus. What we want to do is kind of put our arm around his shoulders and say, he's not usually like this, I'm sorry, and just kind of lead him out. Let him calm down a little bit. But it's the same Jesus that just turned water into wine, not because he was powerful, but because he wanted to protect an embarrassed host from shame. It's the same Jesus, it's not different. And there's no coincidence that John begins by showing this first miraculous work of Jesus was not any desire by Jesus to show his power. As a matter of fact, he was hesitant to show his power. It's why he didn't want to do it originally. But the reason he did it is simply a behind-the-scenes miracle to spare someone from shame because he just loves to save us, not just later, but now. And the whole point of that miracle is the abundant joy of Jesus Christ that God wants to give us in this wine being a symbol of abundance and love and the way in which God wants to fill us with himself. It's just this beautiful and tender hearted and loving Jesus. And then next he goes off and does this thing in the temple. What I would say to you is that it is not only essential for us to understand that Jesus but it's essential for us to emulate that Jesus. But this is not simply here for us to understand who Jesus is, but it is here that we might share his passion. That this is the side of Jesus that we need to know. Our vision as a church, and we've been saying this a lot lately, includes the idea that we want to be a passionate people. That's our desire. So our desire is that every college student that comes through this place for the few years and every student that graduates from our student ministry and every adult that spends years here, that all of them would leave our church more passionate than when they came. And so passion and affection matters to us. Why? Because God is a, is a passionate God. We want to share his affections. We want to love what he loves and hate what he hates. We want to feel the way that he feels what we really want is we want a people who share the zeal of Jesus Christ. Listen, that's not just our vision, that's God's. And what I want us to see this morning and might surprise us a little bit is that God actually hates it when his people do not share his zeal. Look at the story in John chapter 2 starting in verse 13. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who had sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, we'll destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, I want us to picture the context together. I told you last week that in just a few words at the beginning of chapter 2, the whole scene is set with those words, and there was a wedding. Well, in the same way in this text, the scene is set by the simple words, the Passover of the Jews. 
The Passover was the biggest celebration of the year, the annual celebration of God miraculously delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt. God had continued to send Moses to Pharaoh to call him to submit to the authority of the Lord. Pharaoh's heart was continually hardened. And what Pharaoh does is what most people do. That is when God comes knocking and calling you to repent and be saved, we wave our puny fist at God and say, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. And so Pharaoh is a picture of everyone who just rejects the Lord. And Pharaoh just says, I don't care what your Lord says. He has no authority over me. And because of Pharaoh's continued rejection of the Lord, the wrath of God was poured out upon him. That's exactly what happens to everyone who rejects the Lord. He gives offer and offer and offer, and as we reject him, the wrath of God comes. And so it is, all of the plagues, the last plague is that the firstborn would be killed unless the blood of a lamb was put upon the doorpost. And so if the blood was placed upon the doorpost, the angel of death would come over and every door that had blood on it was passed over and spared from the wrath of God. All of that a picture of the fact that only if the blood of Jesus Christ has been applied to your life by you receiving Jesus will the wrath of God pass over you. And if the blood of Jesus has not been applied to you by trusting in Jesus Christ, then the wrath of God will not pass over you. It will descend upon you for all of eternity. And so they celebrated the Passover. Now, it's estimated that during Jesus' day, there was somewhere between 100 and 300,000 people that lived in Jerusalem. A very small place, 100 to 300,000 people. It's also estimated that the Passover, 1 million people were present. And so the scene is absolutely incredible how chaotic it is and how packed it is. Think of game day in Athens times 10. It feels that way. And the temple even more so because everyone who had come had come for the same purpose. They came to be at the temple. It is also estimated conservatively that there were 75,000 people who would be present in that outward courtyard of the temple. So there is the holy of holies in the holy place. But in this courtyard inside of these stone walls, there could have been upwards of 75,000 people there. And every person had come to do two things. They had come to make their annual sacrifice and to pay their annual temple tax. Both of those things were necessary. People had come from 15, 20, 30 miles away, most of them walking, some of them riding a donkey or a camel, but they had come from miles away. And so because they had come to do those things, and most of them had come from a far distance, it was necessary for them to have an animal and money for the tax. Apparently, and I would imagine this is true, it was just difficult to travel with a live animal that you were going to sacrifice, an extra one. It's hard to carry an extra lamb as you're walking for 15 miles. And the problem is everyone came with their own currency, but they had to give the offering in the same currency. And so out of a gracious necessity, there needed to be a place where animals could be purchased and where money could be changed. That's not the problem. The problem is, is that year after year, it seemed simply out of convenience the place of selling got closer and closer and closer until now all of a sudden it was actually inside the court of the Gentiles. And so imagine the scene. The outer court of the temple filled with people. There are tables and there are booths everywhere. Just imagine the sights, the sounds, and the smells of that outer court of the Gentiles. You can imagine the sound that was there and the sights of how busy it would be. 75,000 people surrounded there. Literally hundreds of thousands of sacrifices made every year, which means there are thousands and thousands of animals that are being purchased. 
The only way I can think about it is if you've ever been to a foreign country and you've been to some outdoor bazaar or market where people are buying and selling. And I've been in these places before in which you felt so claustrophobic where you're worried that anybody with you is going to be lost and you hear the just loudness of people arguing and bargaining and buying and selling. Just imagine this is exactly what it feels like. So Jesus walks in. He steps into the gate and he looks around at this outward temple, this outward courtyard of the Gentiles, and he walks away and he does something. Now, the little detail of what he does matters because I think we have a tendency to think that Jesus just lost it. He had this uncontrolled fit of anger and he just couldn't take it anymore and he just lost it, but that's not true. The reason we know that is because it says in verse 14, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and money changers sitting there, and look at verse 15, and making a whip of cords. Now this took time. Jesus paused for a minute. He stopped. You think, well, maybe if Jesus would have just taken a minute, he wouldn't have responded that way. He took a minute. He may take it a few minutes. What appears to be happening is that he walked around and found the cords that had been used to hold the animals or maybe the the cords that had been used to tie up the cages where the birds had been brought in. So he finds these loose cords on the ground. He goes somewhere where he can find enough space to do this and he hand makes a whip. He's not just losing it. He's thoughtful about what he's doing. He's calculated in what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He hand makes a whip. And then it tells us that he uses that whip to do three things. And you could not use more dramatic language than the three verbs in verse 15. Drove, poured, and turned. Circle those. It says that he made a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple. I need that to set in with you for a minute. 75,000s of people, thousands of animals. And it says that Jesus used the whip long enough to drive everyone out of the courtyard. Imagine what's happening here. So the animals are being cut loose and the animals are running for the door and every single person knows they're gonna get whipped if they don't go for the door. And so there's this mass chaos and exodus of everyone trying to get out of the courtyard because there's a man with a whip driving everyone out. This took some time. It says he drove them all out and then he poured out the coins of the money changers one by one going to every place that was changing money and just pouring them out. This would make people angry, wouldn't you imagine? All of the money that they had been taking in and all of the money they were giving out, just table to table, poured out. This took some time. And then it says this, and he overturned their tables. And so it appears that after driving everyone out and after pouring out all of the money, he went back in and just flipped over all the tables. Now, what do you do with that, Jesus? That, that's not the Jesus seems to be at the wedding turning water into wine, but it's the same Jesus. And then he says this in verse 16, he told those who sold the pigeons, and it seems really odd that he targeted the people selling pigeons, but we're going to see why in just a minute. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. It is very clear in the original language that there's a play on words here with the idea of house. What he's saying is this, this is not your house. This is my father's house, and you've taken over a house that is not yours. You don't have the right to be able to do what you're doing in this house. This house does not belong to you. This is my father's house and you have taken this house and abused it and used it for purposes that are not right. 
Imagine the disciples right now. They just left everything to follow Jesus, and their first taste of Jesus was the water and the wine. Their first real experience of seeing the heart of Jesus was this, and it says that they saw his glory at the end of that passage. That doesn't just mean they saw his power to turn water into wine. They saw his heart, and they saw his affections, and they saw his desires. One of the reasons they believed is not because they saw his power, but because they saw the tenderness and love and grace of his heart, that he would go behind the scenes and do something that most people would never know he did just because he loved these people. And they're like, I can get behind this Jesus. This is the guy. We love this guy. And imagine what they're thinking as they watch him do this. They were probably also running for the door. So it says that as they try to process this, in the same way we try to process this, it says in verse 17 that they remembered something. Now we don't know if they remembered it right then or later, most likely later because of what it says in the rest of our verses in verse 22. But at some point they remembered Psalm 69. We're not going to go to it, but just listen to the context. David feels this burning passion for the house of God. He loves the worship of God. His heart belongs to the Lord. He is a man after God's own heart. And so he is angered over the people's idolatry. He is angered over how casually they're taking the presence of God. And so he begins to be consumed with this passion for God and for his house and for his worship and for his honor and for his glory and for his presence. But no one seems to share it with him. And so he becomes a disgrace because of his own passion for the things of God. And it says that the disciples remembered Psalm 69. And they discerned that Psalm 69 was pointing us towards Jesus, that Jesus, like David, would have this passion for the house and the honor and the glory of the Lord, but not many people would share it. And he would become a disgrace because of his love for the things of God. They remember that Psalm 69 says, zeal for your house will consume That word consume means to be totally taken over by something. It means to be eaten up with something. It means to completely be overcome. That is the nature of zeal. It's why the idea of zeal is such an important word. Because zeal means a burning and consuming passion or drive. Get that down. The idea of zeal is important here because it's deeper than passion. It's this burning and consuming desire or drive. And what we see in Jesus here is zeal. He is consumed with something. He has this burning passion and desire for something. And it erupts as he walks in. So the question I've been asking all week is that what, what was it? Like, What did he see when he walked in? that made him be overcome with a burning passion or desire. There's a lot of things. I think, first of all, he walked in and he saw the injustice. He saw the injustice. He saw the way in which they were exploiting the poor. He saw the commissions being made in the exchanging of money. This wasn't just a service to help you out and exchange your money. They were making commissions on this. You say, well, how do we know they were exploiting the poor? Because of the emphasis on the pigeons. Why in the world would John make a point in verse 16 to say that Jesus specifically went to the ones that sold the pigeons? Because this. Because the poorest of the people could not afford a proper sacrifice to give to the Lord. And the cheapest sacrifice that God would accept was the sacrifice of a pigeon. And what 
the people were doing in the market is taking the pigeons and exploiting the poor by charging more than they needed to because the poor didn't have any other choice than to get a pigeon. They couldn't come empty-handed. They had to get something. And so Jesus saw the injustice. He saw the money that was being made. He saw the way in which people were being exploited. He saw that they were using the name of God as a means to take advantage of weak and helpless people. He was consumed with zeal because of the injustice. He was also consumed because of the hypocrisy. Like he knew what was in their hearts. This was the thing about Jesus. He could look at anyone and look beyond the outward appearance and look directly at the heart. He could see right through them. And what he saw was empty external religious practices, that everything they were doing was self-serving. There was no real love for God. There was no real love for people. There was no humility or worship or repentance. There was none of this idea of who may ascend the hill of the Lord, those who have a pure hands and a clean heart. No, there was no desire to have clean hands. Their hands were all dirty. There was no desire to have a pure heart. Their hearts were all evil. And so Jesus saw the hypocrisy and Jesus hates the hypocrisy. I think he also walked in and saw the overwhelming nationalism. Let me be clear right here. Jesus created this nation for his glory. He called out this people that they would be his people. But the reason he did it, starting from Genesis 12, is that they would be a light to the nations. It was not about them. It was about God's desire to use them for his glory. And so what God was gonna do is pour out his blessing on his people, that his people, this is Psalm 67, might be used to pour out that blessing on others. But what happened is this, they had become so centered upon themselves, so consumed with their nationality, that they neglected to remember that the whole reason they existed was to be a channel for the blessing of God. And so now they're filled with all kinds of pride and deception, desire for power and superiority, The nation itself had really become their religion. This is why John the Baptist in Matthew 3 began to infuriate the religious leaders when he said this. He said, you say our father is Abraham. To which John the Baptist said, God could turn these stones into children of Abraham. Why? Because there was just so much pride. And their desire in these days were not for God's kingdom to come, but for the kingdom, the political kingdom they had built to be preserved. So they did not have a desire for spiritual salvation, but only for national salvation. They weren't concerned about lost people. They just wanted the Messiah to come and destroy all their enemies. Jesus walked in and he saw it. And everything he saw reeked to him. He hated it. It was so far from God's heart. And the reality is there is nothing that God hates more than using religious practices to cover up evil hearts. Can I say that again? There is nothing God hates more than using religious practices to cover up evil hearts. That's exactly what was happening. And can I just say to you, that's what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. Taking the Lord's name in vain is not simply saying the name of the Lord. I I think that's a secondary meaning. I think the primary meaning is for someone to claim that they know the Lord and take the name of Christian or the Lord upon themselves and then to live in a way that disgraces that. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. God cares about his name. He cares about his reputation. He cares about his glory. And here is this place that was to be a place in which God is worshiped and has been using to take advantage and exploit people. Now listen, I know we have a hard time knowing what to do with Jesus right here. I know that. But would you really want a God that didn't hate what was going on? I mean, we have a God who is holy and righteous and just, 
Isn't it only right that he should be bothered by sin and evil and injustice? Shouldn't it be right that our God hates things? Do we want a God that is not bothered by sin and evil and injustice? We want a God who is bothered. We want a God who sees injustice and we can know that vengeance is his and he will repay, says the Lord. We want a God who is bothered by evil and sin. We want a God who hates certain things. What other kind of God would we want? You know, there's this narrative this day, this godless, demonic narrative that would say something like this. For Christians to point out someone's sin is an unloving thing to do, and the most loving thing that we need to do is just embrace everyone in their sin and let them know that God loves them. Can I just be very clear? That's not love, that's hate. Because what it does is massages people's emotions while they go to hell. The most loving thing to do is say this, the way in which you live is sinful and God hates it. But God has sent his son Jesus Christ to take all the wrath you deserve and you can be changed completely if you will simply come to Jesus. That's the loving thing to do. And don't let anyone tell you that pointing out sin is being a bigot. The most loving thing we do is we tell them God has a better way for you. This is sin and you can't live in this sin and go to heaven and God has made a way through Christ and he loves you and wants to change you. That's love. God hates injustice and hypocrisy, this demonic nationality, but that's, that's not actually the root issue here. I need you to hear this. There is a reason that Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us a different side of this story. They talk about the second time Jesus did this. Only John records the first time they did this. And the reality is there is a deeper issue that John wants us to see than the other gospel writers were concerned about us seeing. And the way we see it is simply our understanding of the word, listen, temple, temple. See, God's desire had always been for people. God's desire is always to be with people and to meet people and to love people and for him to pour out his grace and his love and kindness for all of eternity on people. That's always the heart of God. Like he really wants to, for all of eternity, to just keep pouring out grace and kindness to you. This is what God does. But in Adam and Eve's rejection of God, they lost the the relational presence of God. He was still omnipresence, but they lost the closeness and intimacy and the whole story of the Bible is God getting that back. And the temple was to be a place in which God meets with his people. His people who could only find life in his presence. God didn't have to do this, but God did. Why? Because he wants to be with people. And so he creates this temple that is a place in which his presence dwells, where people could go to know him and to meet with him and have their life changed by his presence. And 1 Kings 18, you can read that later, says that when Solomon dedicated the, the temple, the glory of the Lord filled the temple and everyone saw the smoke and the fire. Why? Because everyone needed to know this is a holy place where God dwells and God has created this place so you could come and know him. And so imagine God whose heart has always been to dwell with his people and his son, Jesus Christ, coming, knowing that was the heart of God and walking into a temple and realized that they had missed the point entirely, that this was no longer a place for God's presence. The reality is that when Jesus showed up in the temple that day, he realized that the temple was a nationalistic, capitalistic, social stronghold used to house a religious system that completely missed the heart of God. Can I say that again? The temple was a nationalistic, capitalistic, social stronghold used to house a religious system that missed the heart of God. 
I've been ministering to a pastor, not in this area, of a large, prominent, wealthy church. The problem is, is this church has never experienced much of God, and this pastor is trying to lead them towards prayer and evangelism and Jesus and intimacy and love for God and talking to them about the presence of God, and they don't like it. And you know the reason they don't like it, listen, is because what they have historically been is what my father would say is a country club with a steeple on top. They're just a country club. They don't love Jesus. There is certainly a remnant, but the majority of them don't come there because they love Jesus. This is their social structure. This is where they meet with people. This is where they they kind of satisfy their need to serve in some capacity. But God is not there. And immediately when the pastor tries to lead them towards God, they don't want it. Why? Because they don't want church because they love God. They want church because they love themselves. That's exactly what Jesus saw. And so in a moment, he was consumed with this God-centered and people-focused desire for pure-hearted worship. He was consumed with the zeal for God's eternal plan, and that is that people would know him and enjoy him and experience his presence. What's happening here, listen carefully, is not really that Jesus is overturning tables as much as Jesus is overturning their religious system. That's what's happening. He wasn't just overturning tables. He was taking their entire system and he was overturning it. Why? Because it no longer fulfilled the purpose for which God designed it. That they had missed the heart of God. And sometimes in order to build something new, you have to dismantle the old. You say, how do I know that that's what Jesus was going for? Because of what it says in verse 18. The Jews said, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, listen carefully, it's hard in the English to see this. This is, this is the strongest, what we call an imperative in the Greek, a command that you can get. What Jesus is saying is this. He's commanding them to do something. He says, you want a sign? Destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. It's so amazing. Like just the strength and the courage of Jesus. Say, you want a sign? Destroy the temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Oh, I love that. They don't understand it. They say, Jesus, it took 46 years for us to build this temple, and you'll raise it in three days. But he was not speaking about that temple. He was speaking about the temple of his body. And when the disciples saw that he was raised from the dead, they remembered that he said this, and then they believed the scripture. Why? Because it wasn't until the resurrection that they realized, wait a minute, he wasn't concerned with that. He was concerned with this. You want a sign? You take me down, and I'll be raised up in three days. And what's funny is they do exactly what he tells them to do. Because it's all according to the sovereign plan of God. They take him down, they destroy the temple, and in three days, he shows the reason he has the, over, the ability to overthrow the temple. You see, it was in John 1.14 in which John says to us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt means he tabernacled among us. It is bringing us back to the Garden of Eden. It is bringing it back to God's desire to be present among his people. And what Jesus is saying right here is this. The temple has always been the place where God meets man, but we don't need the temple anymore because now we've got Jesus Christ. The temple has always been the place in which sacrifices for sin were made, but we don't need the temple anymore because that's done in Jesus Christ. We don't need the temple because it has been replaced with Jesus. Everything that God ever designed for the temple, every hope we've ever had for the temple is all met in Jesus Christ. He fulfills everything that we've ever needed from the temple, and Jesus had to tear down the old in order to build the new. 
What's so sad is that their rejection of Jesus was really their rejection of God. They didn't want God. They just wanted self-preservation, and it broke the heart of Jesus, and he was filled with holy zeal for the honor of his Father and for his desire for you. I said to you when we started that it was not only important that we understand the heart of Jesus here, but that we emulate his heart in this passage. I'm gonna prove that to you in just a minute. Revelation chapter one has a vision of Jesus on fire. Literally, his hair is on fire, his eyes are on fire, his feet are on fire, everything's on fire. You just have Jesus consumed with glory. That is the, the, uh, an updated picture of Jesus, right? He, he's no longer a baby in a manger. He is no longer crucified. He is ablaze with the glory of God, okay? So that's Jesus. And the fire represents the presence of God. He is, Ephesians three nineteen filled with the fullness of God. So Jesus just ablaze with God's presence. And then listen carefully, stay with me. Surrounding Jesus are these lampstands. The lampstands symbolize the church because the church is the place in which the fire of Jesus is to be manifested. The whole reason that God designed the church is the church would be a place in which people would be able to see and know and experience the fire of God's presence. So when we, when we use that phrase, I want to be on fire for Jesus. That's what we mean. We mean filled up with the Holy Spirit, consumed with the presence of God, overtaken by God's presence. It's Revelation 1. That's what it means to be on fire for God. And the church exists. Prince Avenue Baptist Church exists to be a holder of the fire of God's presence. So, that's why Jesus is disgusted with the church of Laodicea. He says, I know your works. You were neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is the same thing we see in John 2. It is the disgust of Jesus Christ over a church who has missed the passion for God's presence. For you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Why do we point out people's sin? Because we love them. And why does God point out ours? Because he loves us. Listen to this. John Stott writing about the church of Laodicea says this. Listen carefully, we're almost done. John Stott says, perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the church at the beginning of the 21st century than this one. It describes, listen carefully, it describes vividly the respectable, nominal, rather sentimental, skin-deep religiosity, which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. That's what God hates, the lukewarm bath of religion. So here's my concern with Prince. I do believe out of all of the seven churches, the one that we need to listen to the most of is the church of Laodicea. Why? Because we've prospered and our life is generally good and we live in a place of ease. And the result of that is that we just drift. Here's the problem. We never drift towards passion. 
We never drift towards zeal. We always drift towards coldness. If you just, if you just let go and you're just kind of drifting through life and you're not pursuing passion for God, you will not drift towards zeal. You'll drift towards coldness. And what happened at the church of Laodicea is I'm afraid the same thing that could happen to us is that we just drift away slowly from the Lord and all of a sudden realize we have lost our passion for God. We have no zeal for God. There is nothing burning in our hearts. We don't love what he loves and hate what he hates. We don't share his deep affections. And the result is we don't know what to do with the Jesus of John 2 when the reality is we should be emulating the Jesus of John 2. And the only way that we fight this is that we continue to cultivate in our hearts a passion for God. So look at what he says in Revelation 3. He says, here's the answer. So be zealous and repent. So what do we do? The church of Laodicea says, first you repent. You repent of a cold heart. Why? Because it's a sin. And then you be zealous. It's a command. You start to cultivate zeal. You start to cultivate passion for God. How do you do that? Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. A verse for believers. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So how do we cultivate zeal? Well, we hear the knock of Jesus Christ every single moment of the day, inviting himself in. Why? Because he wants to put inside of our hearts a passion for him. And he says, I want to eat with you and I want to be with you and I want to spend time with you. And the only way that we stop the drift towards coldness and move towards a passion for God is through constant intimacy and time with him. If we do not, we will drift. And we will not drift towards passion. We will drift towards coldness. And God hates it. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.